that story of the widow in Luke 18, it's so powerful. It's so powerful. And, and, and one of the things that it, it teaches us is that there are things that we are not going to receive from God unless we are present in prayer. The, um, the uh, Muros and the Deermans were at a concert in Richmond last night. Sold out? Was, I don't know if that, was it sold out? It was sold out, yeah. And so they're up in the, in the balcony seats. Jennifer called them the, the nosebleeds. And, and somebody uh, who works for the event was walking around and came up to them and said, is it just you four here together? And they said, yes. And, uh, and they said, how would you like to sit in the front row? Right, and so they're like, "Yeah, no, we'd just we'd rather stay here." You know, this is what we're familiar with. They're like, "No, come on!" So, so they get to be ushered down, right? So they're the people that everybody else in the Colosseum is thinking, "How did they get those seats?" Right? Sometimes you have to be present for the favor to come your way, right? So. So she was telling me that story just for the service, and then Tara was talking about that parable, and then Vanessa was using it for the worship wrap-up, and I just, I couldn't help but believe that somebody here, God is speaking to you about the persistence that you've got to bring to your prayer life, and what, whoever you are, and whatever it is that you're going after, we're just going to tell you, you have got to keep coming before him. There are things that God's going to do for us just because he's a perfect God and he has a perfect love for us, right? And we never even have to ask. He just gives to us. And then there's things that come to us through the principle of reciprocity, which is the practice of sowing and reaping. As we sow into this life, whether it's monetarily or through kindness, and other, right? There's, we, we reap a harvest. There's another category of things that we receive from God that's directly connected to prayer. And until we are present in prayer, the favor that he wants to give to us will not come. And so, Father, for whoever's attention that you're trying to get tonight, Lord, for this third, we're coming at him a third time, a third time, Lord, I pray that you would reinstill in them a sense of hope that you're listening, that you would reinstill in them a hope in the power of prayer and the effectiveness of prayer, and that you would reinstill in them a, a persistence that their, their approach to whatever this thing that they're praying for, that they've just decided they're going to Luke 18 you, and they are going to wear you out. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said, amen, amen. amen. So we are in a series, Race and Politics, it's a good week for it, don't you think? Come on. So let me share this statement, and this is really part two of the message that we got into on October 22nd, and then we did Oktoberfest, then we did a Racial Taboo and a prayer service last uh, weekend, uh, and now we're coming back into the series tonight, and we're going to really dig deep uh, into this text. And again, if we don't get to it, that's the beauty of the series. We'll just keep pushing it down uh, the line to next week because we don't want to hurry through this content. So Jesus has always called his church to be a force for change especially in the fight against racial and political hostility. And without the power of the Holy Spirit, we will fail. 
Now, I'm not going to do a big recap for the sake of time, so if, if, you want, if you weren't here on October 22nd and you want to catch up to where we are, then you're going to need to listen to that podcast this week through our website. The sermons are always on there. When you go to the website, you've got to choose your location, choose Newport News, and then you'll be able to get the 1022 podcast. And then the notes are always online. There's a little like document icon. You click that, and it'll download the PDF, and then all the notes are there. So we, we started on the, the 22nd looking at the story of the encounter of Jesus and his disciples with a Syrophoenician woman. And, and it's, it's an important encounter for us to understand because it looks like on the surface that Jesus is mean to her. In fact, it looks beyond mean. It looks like Jesus is a racist. It looks like he's a bigot. And we unpacked that story on the 22nd. And so you're going to want to go, if you've ever read that encounter and thought, I'm not sure this was supposed to be in the Bible. Why is it here? Then you can listen to that message and understand. So now we're going to get to the the close of what that teaching was. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn to Matthew 15. We're going to start reading in verse 28. Fighting a bit of a cold, so I'm going to keep these halls in. Vanessa lied earlier. She doesn't have three children at home. She has four. And I'm the, the biggest baby of the bunch. All right, 28, verse 28. So listen to what, so, so he's had this encounter, October 22nd, if you want to learn about all those verses leading up to it. Uh, uh, the, verse 28, dear woman, Jesus said to her, your faith is great, your request is granted, right? This is, all, this is a, a great partnering text to Luke 18. Luke 18 was a parable. This is a living story of a real person. And, and the, her, she was there because her daughter was being harassed by a demonic spirit. And so now Jesus is saying, your faith, your faith. It's because your love for your daughter was so great that you were not willing to give up even in the face of what appeared to be insult. And so now your daughter is free. Can you imagine the sentiment of the heart of that mother when she heard those words, but even more importantly, when she went back and found her daughter at home and found her free, maybe for the first time of her life from the harassment that this demonic spirit brought? Now, I think... That one of the reasons why this story ends in a miracle is not just for this woman, but it ends in a miracle for us. Because I believe that God is trying to help the disciples and help us to understand that if we have any hope and expectation of moving with such supernatural power, meaning that we become a conduit of God's power to meet a need that is beyond human understanding and what human effort could ever hope to fix, that if we want to be a conduit of that kind of power like Jesus is, then we've got to rid the feelings and the thoughts and the biases of racism and bigotry that can be in all of our lives. Jesus is saying to the disciples, if you want to do this, then you've got to deal with this junk that's in your heart. You see, what we talked about on October 22nd is that we're building up to Matthew 16. That's not going to be a part of the sermon, but Jesus is building up to one of his declarative statements as to why he came to this earth. He told us he came to seek and to save the lost, and then in Matthew 16, he tells us that he came to build his church. And then in Matthew 15 and leading up to 16, guess what the two things that Jesus talked about? He talked about race 
And then he talks about politics, which is where we're going tonight. Why did he do that? Because 2,000 years ago, the church then had the same problem that it has today, and that's racism and politics gets in the way of the work that God is trying to do in you, but also through you. Anybody ever used one of these before? Who's the plunger in your house, right? Yeah, is there a plunger in your house? I see lots of guys' hands going up, right? I have a, you know, I, my, my thought is whoever stops up the toilet should be the person that's responsible for unclogging the toilet, right? There's some equity there. So I'm the plunger, obviously, in our house. And uh, not because I'm the stopper-upper. I know that's why you're laughing. I, I got you. Okay, I'm on to you. All right, all right. So I remember it was about a year ago the toilet in the upstairs hallway, which belongs to the kids, right, just for, 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 for you note takers, was so stopped up, I had to dismantle the toilet. I had to take the thing apart. It was a, this, I had a snake in there. That wouldn't do it right. I'm plunging. And I had to take the tank off, and then you got to use the shop back to get all the water. I had to dismantle the toilet in order to get it unstopped, right? If you've ever had to clear a toilet like that, some of you are going to be a little grossed out, you know that there's a splashing that takes place, right? And I would say to you, you've not unclogged a toilet until there was splashing. You've not unclogged a toilet until you have to take a shower because of the work that you just did to get that thing unclogged. You know why I'm talking about that? Because that's what the story is about in the Bible right here. Jesus is saying to the disciples, you got crap in your heart. And unless you let somebody like me, talking about Jesus, take a soul plunger, which oftentimes is the word of God, to deep inside of you, that stuff in there is going to block what God wants to do through you. Not just what he wants to do in you, but we're not in this thing just for what God's going to do for us. We're in this so God will do stuff in us so that we can be an instrument in his hand so he can use us in the world. Jesus, Jesus, when he was here, the power of God was moving through him to impact people's lives. God wants to use you to impact people's lives. But I've got crap in my life. You've got crap in your life. And sometimes we need people that love us enough to walk up to us with one of these. Right? In fact, we should all get these with the City Life Church on it. Right? And then when you show up for coffee, and that's on the table, just so you know what the conversation is going to be about. If you get a call from me, oh, now that thing's stuck on there, Right? And you show up for the meeting, and I'm holding one of these in my hand, then we just know, right? There's stuff we got to deal with. You know, you, you find out a lot about people when you're using these. There are people that like to use these. They like to do the plunging, but they don't like to be plunged, right? The, the people that love to hold on to these, but when it's time for someone to hold on to it for them... The whole world is against them. There is not one person in this room who doesn't need to be plunged every now and again. Not one person. All of us. It's one of the reasons why the community of the church is so sacred and so important and so necessary is so that we can surround ourselves with people that love us enough, one, to acknowledge that we're a little bit clogged up and they're willing to get splashed on a little bit by our attitude that we all bring because we don't like to get our soul plunged. We have a plunging culture here at the City Life Church. Can I just tell you that? A plunging culture. 
And it's not for everybody because sometimes it feels confrontational. But when you're looking across the room and you see a person that you know loves you, you see a person that has served you and sacrificed for you and given for you, if they're holding one of these in a sense at you, then what I would encourage you to do, let them plunge away because you're going to be a better person for it. Right? Just as this girl was desperate for a healing, so too is our world desperate for healing. The division and the angst and the anger that the world is experiencing right now. And, and I say that it's not just our nation, it's the world. Because when the United States is in a place of instability, there's a feeling of instability throughout the world. And, and that's not a statement of, of, of national arrogance. right? You understand, their economies are tied together. There's support that comes, military support, financial support. There, there's a sense of instability in the world. The, the church and those who are devoted followers of Christ, Christ, these are the times when God is looking to reach for us to drop us into moments like this so that his power can move through us. We are a conduit of his power and so that he can use us to impact this world to bring healing. Matthew 15 and this encounter that he has with the Syrophoenician woman, sometimes you're the disciple in the story and then sometimes you're supposed to be Jesus. In fact, I would say to you that the times when you're supposed to be the disciple and let your soul get plunged a little bit, it's so that you can become Jesus to a hurting world that needs a healing. And if you want this sermon that built up to all of that, you can get that on the podcast. Galatians 2, 11 through 14. I, I love this text. We're not going to read it tonight, but Galatians 2, 11 through 14. This is the time when, when, when the Apostle Paul shows up and he observes Peter sitting with the Gentiles. And that's everybody who wasn't Jewish was called a Gentile. And that when some, some important Jewish people came to visit them, Peter got up and went and sat with the Jews because he was ashamed that he was mixing with people that were of a different race than him. Now, Paul plunges him right there in the moment in front of everybody, right? It's a great story. And sometimes we might say, I wonder why Paul didn't take him aside. Sometimes if you're a leader and you're influencing people and your mistake is public, so too needs to be your correction. And that's what was happening to Peter. He had led Barnabas astray. Other people were following after him. Praise God for the courage of someone like Paul who was willing to reach for the plunger of correction and bring correction to that moment. The church has been struggling with racism from the beginning. For 2,000 years, racism has been a problem in the church. And can we all just find something inside of us that says we want to be the generation that brings progress that has not come for centuries before us? If you want to know whether or not you need some plunging when it comes to racism, then you should take the implicit association test. Anybody ever done the implicit association test? If you Google that implicit association test, I'm telling you, I've done it multiple times, and no matter how hard I try, I can't change my outcome. My outcome always tests. I always score. I've taken it so many times. It consistently scores a moderate, automatic preference towards European Americans. See, sometimes we can't change the biases that are in us 
because they've become so much a part of who we are, it's just hard for them to change. And so then we have a responsibility of being self-aware of those biases so those biases stop influencing our choices. So those biases stop influencing our emotions. So those biases stop influencing our attitudes towards other people. Now, you're not going to like this test because the test is simple. And we like to think of ourselves as complicated. We like to think of ourselves as, as a, a test this simple can't understand something about me that this, that's so complex. The test measures your reaction time through keystrokes through associating negative words with certain colors of skin and then positive words with certain colors of skin. You can do this implicit association test for races. You can do it for, for people that uh, have disabilities. You can do the implicit association test for lots of different kinds of circumstances and situations. But if you've never done it, you should do it because you might be surprised at how you score. And if you score in a way that makes you frustrated like I do, it's still a help to you because we have to be be self-aware. So let me give you some next steps. You got to stop mentioning color in your stories when the color of the person does not matter. So I was driving here just on the way to church and this person cuts me off. They're black in their car and they just get in my lane without signaling. Who cares what color they are? Why do, why do, why do we feel compelled to point out the color of the person's skin. My guess is if you're the person that mentions the color of their skin, you never say white. I was at Walmart the other day, and you, you wouldn't believe the attitude that cashier had. She was white, and she was ringing me out. Who says that? Right? White people don't. Yeah? You know why that is? Because there, there are these inherent biases that are in us that causes us to be drawn to the color of their skin, and then we associate the color of the skin with the behavior when the two have nothing to do with each other. But it's learned. It's, it's, it's in us. It's why when we take the implicit association test, our score comes out in a way that makes us frustrated. It's just in there. So a practical thing that you can begin to do to change yourself and change the world is, unless it's germane to the conversation, leave the color of the person's skin out. Leave it out. You got to have cross-cultural friendships. If the people that you roll with and hang out with, if they all look like you, you're, you're, you're putting yourself in an environment of isolation, and that does not help you, and it doesn't help our world. You've got to start boycotting racially motivated humor. You're hanging out with your friends, somebody tells a joke, and it's a joke about blacks, or, or maybe it's a joke about gender, or maybe it's a joke about this, that, or the other. And in that moment, right, you have a responsibility, one, to not participate in that. And then if you feel so inclined, which we're going to get to in just a minute, sometimes it's your responsibility to speak up and say, you know what, I just got to tell you, I'm not trying to be that guy right now, but I really don't think that's funny. Yep. And then maybe they make fun of you. Maybe they mock you. Then you just go to the bathroom and you come back with one of these. <laughs> right? Because it works this way and this way. I'm just saying. All right. I'm just saying. You got to speak out whenever possible. You got to understand the principle in the Bible about casting pearls before swines. That principle is about sometimes people aren't ready to receive what needs to be heard. And so you've got to be attuned to the Holy Spirit about whether or not it's time to bring correction. 
You have to teach your children that diversity is precious. Teach your children that diversity is precious. I don't want my kids to be colorblind. What I want my kids to be is, is color celebrative. I want them to celebrate the diversity in this world that God created. I think we're supposed to see one another, but we're supposed to see one another as peers and equals and then celebrate the beauty and the wonder of the diversity that God gave as a gift to this world. I have to allow Scripture to be my authority and not my life experience. And then the last one is this before we get into politics, so we're just getting warmed up here, right? you got to be a Romans 12, 15 person. If you don't know what that means, I wrote a blog called Fear. You go to the church's website, there's a link to my blog. I wrote wrote a blog this week on fear, and it it unpacks this this idea of of, of 2 Timothy 1.7 about how God has not given us a spirit of fear, but then it brings in uh, Romans 12.15 and this responsibility that we have to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and mourn with those who are mourning. And so we have to be a Romans 12.15 person, but you can read the blog to figure that out. All right, let's talk about politics, because that's where Jesus goes. I hope you, this fascinates me. Jesus is about ready to give his second declarative statement as to why he came to the earth, right? He came to seek and to save the lost, and he came to build his church. Now, Jesus is intentional in everything that he does. So before he gives this big announcement that he's going to build his church, he gets to decide what he's going to talk about. So he talks about race. This encounter with the Syrophoenician woman, he makes this a central part of the building up of the big announcement of why he came. And before he does that, he says, let's tackle politics. Because race and politics were always going to be the biggest impediments to the impact of the church, and they still are today. So Matthew 16, come on, verses 1 through 12. One day the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test Jesus, demanding that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. He replied, you know the saying, red sky at night means fair weather tomorrow, and red sky in the morning means foul weather all day. You know how to interpret the weather signs in the sky, but you don't know how to interpret the signs of the times. Only an evil and adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign, but the only sign that I will give to you is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Then Jesus left them, And he went away. Verse 5. Later, after they crossed to the other side of the lake, the disciples discovered they had forgotten to bring any bread. Watch out, Jesus warned them. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. you got to love the disciples. At this, they began to argue with each other because they had forgotten to bring the bread. So Jesus knew what they were saying. He says, you have so little faith. Now, again, we've talked about this before. Faith here isn't talking about believing. Faith here is a word that Jesus often used to talk about not being a spiritually minded person. So what he's saying is you're, 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 you're so not a spiritually minded person, and so you, you think that we're always talking about natural things when I'm trying to talk to you about eternal things. That's what he's saying there. Why are you arguing with each other about having no bread? Don't you understand even yet? Don't you remember the 5,000 I fed with the five loaves of the baskets of, and the five loaves and the baskets of leftovers you picked up? Or the 4,000 I fed with seven loaves and the large baskets of leftovers you picked up? Why can't you understand that I'm not talking about bread? So again, I say, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Verse 12, then at last they understood that he was speaking about the yeast. He wasn't speaking about the yeast and the bread, but about the deceptive teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
Now, if we're not careful, we'll just scoot on past that and work our way to the great moment where Jesus predicts his death and then the, the moment where, 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 where Peter gives his declarative statement about what he believes about Jesus and then Jesus gives his declarative statement about why he came to build the church. But this is important because Jesus is telling us that until we deal with the political divide that plagues the church, it will always be an impediment to the church that he's still building. He talks about racism, and now he talks about politics. How do we know he's talking about politics? Because he's talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were the two dominant political parties that created what's called the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin, you might recognize that word if you've read through some of Scripture, especially through the Easter story, right? That's where Jesus was brought by the Jews to be judged. The Sanhedrin was a combination, get this, it was like a combination of our Congress, of our courts, and church. Yeah, that's a mess, right? All three were handled by this one group of men. All three. And then there were two dominant political parties that comprised of this, this, this ruling council. Now, the Pharisees were, for the most part, from those who were scribes. Now, scribes weren't just copyists. They were like religious lawyers. So they were experts in the Mosaic law. And they felt like their authority for their point of view to be followed by the nation came from their mastery of their understanding of the law. The Sadducees were the aristocrats of Jewish society. They were the wealthy. They were the, the people that kind of inherited office and their name mattered. And there was, there, was, there was a lot of money that came with the Sadducees. And so their authority in Israel came through their social status. See, so not only is there political divide, but the political divide that Jesus was dealing with 2,000 years ago was also touched by, by, by classes. Right? There, was, there was class struggle in Jesus' day. It just, it's a little bit discouraging, isn't it? Because not a whole lot has changed. Because the church gets drawn in to this and stops being the change agent and becomes part of the problem. And Jesus was saying to his disciples right here, he was saying to them, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What was he saying? He was saying, I'm going to build something called the church. Don't get caught up in all this stuff over here. You're supposed to get caught up in what I'm doing over here. And when I send you over there, it's not so you can be a part of the mess. It's so that you can be the salt of the earth and the light of the world that you're supposed to be because of who he is in us. Yeast is an important ingredient for the way in which it alters whatever it is added to. When he says to them, beware of the yeast of the Sadducees, he wasn't just talking about the influence of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which I'm going to get to in just a moment. He was also giving commentary on the nature of the human heart. He was saying, beware of the yeast of the Sadducee, because your heart is like bread and it's easily influenced. When he's, he's saying to disciples, you've got to be careful how much you expose yourself to this influence that they bring because you're influenceable. He's, what he's saying to them is you've got to guard your heart. 
You've got to recognize that, 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 that your humanity is going to be directed through the influence that you expose yourself to. And so he's trying to warn them about the nature of their own heart. But I believe the deception of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that Jesus was referencing here in this moment is that he was warning them that sometimes views that sound religious but are actually political, politically motivated are destructive. See, one of the things the Sadducees and the Pharisees often did is they would take religion and they would use religion to advance their political agenda. Sound familiar? I'm not adverse to politicians being public with their faith, but I'm bothered when I feel like a, public, a politician is only talking about their faith or using religious language because inside of that they have an agenda and they contextualize it with this, this, this religious speak and they know that the church is easily influenced that way. Our responsibility is the same as the disciples 2,000 years ago and the word is beware. Just because a politician comes speaking your religious language, you still have to be on guard to discern the authenticity of what they're saying. We have a responsibility to not become the pawn and the puppet of the politician that's telling us what we want to hear just so they can advance a political agenda. So many times when you see Jesus speaking out against the Sadducees and the Pharisees, it's because they were taking advantage of the common person. They were using religion to influence them to endorse the agenda that just gave them more power. Politics isn't going away. In fact, I would say politics shouldn't go away because the political process is a necessary part of the effort of governance. But the purpose of governance is to always serve the people. And so you can decide whether or not the political process is healthy as to whether or not the motivation of the political process is to serve itself or if it's to serve you and I. And Jesus was saying to the church then, and he says it to us today, be careful to not let your purpose that is eternal to get displaced by a purpose that is temporary. You can be a Republican and be a Christian. You can be a Democrat and be a Christian. You can be a Libertarian and be a Christian. You can be in any other political party you want to pick and be a Christian. And if you're having a hard time believing that, then you're the person in this story that's frustrating Jesus. Because your faith is connected to what you believe about Christ. Our fight is against an enemy that we cannot see, not one that we do see. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul tells us we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers on high. Now, am I saying you shouldn't be politically active? I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. For some of you, that's your calling. Some of you, your calling is to be politically active. Some of you, your, your calling is to run for public office. For some of you, your, your calling is to be right there, elbow deep into this process. Not so that you can be defined by that process, but so that you can bring Christ to that process and be an example of what it means to truly serve others.
Romans 13, 1 through 6. Everyone must submit to governing authorities. For all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without the fear of authorities? Then do what is right, and they will honor you. Now let me stop there, because sometimes this statement is not true of people in authority. Sometimes it's not. And when it's not true of authorities, then we have a responsibility in how we respond to those authorities and how we begin to work for change has to be defined by the theme of the rest of these texts, which is one of respect and honor. And can I just say this too? That sometimes this isn't true for others, but it might be true for you. Now, what do I mean by that? So anyone who rebels against authorities is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. Verse 3, for the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of authorities? Then do what is right. Sometimes there are people in society who have a legitimate reason to fear authority because authority mistreats them. But maybe you've never experienced that. Can I just tell you as a devoted follower of Christ, I have a responsibility to begin to work for the change that needs to come, whether or not it's my circumstance or not. And part of the problem that happens in our country is that we're not compelled to be a part of, 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 of movements of change because it hasn't impacted us. I'm supposed to look into the world and see the people that are hurting, and whether or not it's hurting me or not, I'm supposed to be a part of their effort to bring about change. But the way I work to bring about effort has to be instructed by the theme of these texts. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good. But if you're doing wrong, of course, you should be afraid for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So you must submit to them. Not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. Pay your taxes. Ouch. For these same reasons, he says, for gov government workers need to be paid. They are serving God in what they do. It's interesting, isn't it? Because if you think we have a problem with corruption in this country in 2016, how about you hop in a time machine and go back 2,000 years? If, if you want to get a sense for the kind of corruption that existed 2,000 years ago in Israel, then you, need to, you should read the book Killing Jesus. It's not for the faint of heart, but read that book, the cultural context that's given to us of the Roman world in Jesus' day is absolutely vulgar and ugly. And you know what? That's exactly when these verses were written. So, so don't be of the mindset that says, well, well, Paul must have lived in a different world and it was easier for him to say it. No, no, Paul did live in a different world and it was far more corrupt and vulgar than hopefully we will ever live to see. And yet he still wrote these inspired by the Holy Spirit. Titus 3, 1 through 2, remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. They must not slander anyone, anyone. They must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. 1 Peter 2, 17, respect everyone. Everyone. Not just the people in your party. Respect everyone. And especially love the family of believers. Fear God and respect the king. 
or whatever position of authority is in your government. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God, our Savior. So let me give you some practical steps like we did for racism. For political divide, this is one I would say. Pray for political leaders regardless of their party affiliation. Their party affiliation should not determine whether or not you pray for them. What determines whether or not you pray for them is what the Bible asks of you. And what the Bible asks of you and what it asks of me is to pray. You ready for this one? Remember, a person's lack of respectability does not give me permission to be disrespectful. Ouch. A person's lack of respectability does not give me permission to be disrespectful. Maybe I should just put that right here. Listen, minimize your exposure to intentionally provocative political commentary. Don't be foolish. A lot of the radio programs that you listen to and shows that you turn into, they don't care about you. They care about their bottom line because they're businesses. You know how they make their money? They make their money through advertising. And you know how they make money through advertising? It's through the rate at which they get to charge the advertisers. And you know how that gets determined? It's through their own ratings of how many people listen to them. And you know what shows do the best are those that are most controversial. So they're not being controversial because they're trying to serve you. They're trying to be controversial because they're trying to increase their ratings so they can increase the amount of money that they charge the advertisers so they can increase their profit margin. Don't be naive. Don't, don't be naive. Don't be naive. Whatever side of political affiliation that you fall on, so let's just be fair to both. Fox News is not religious programming. <laughs> CNN and MSNBC is not religious programming programming. You tracking with me? And sometimes they don't even have journalistic integrity. I'm dating myself here, but sometimes I say, Lord, could, could you just bring Walter Cronkite back from the dead? Help a country out, will you? Don't be naive. If, if all of your political ideas are coming from shows that are highly volatile and are only from one network that only brings one perspective, then there's a whole world of thinking that you're missing out on. Not that you've got to change the way that you think, but if you're going to make a difference in this world, then you've got to understand why people think differently than you if you're going to engage them in a meaningful conversation. Read and listen to thoughtful, respectful people who differ from you politically. Now, you might say, well, Fred, that seems to be in direct contradiction to the warning that Jesus gave about beware the yeast of the Sadducees. In fact, you just said, Fred, that we've got to be careful about the influence that we allow to begin to affect our heart. That's why I say listen to thoughtful, respectful people who differ from you. You and I have got to broaden our thinking, not to change our beliefs, but so that we can engage a world that desperately needs Jesus. And he comes to them through you. 
right, let me do this text. I, I think we'll, we'll just we'll push past the song we were going to close with because I want to I talk about this text is wrapping us up so the musicians can, if they're hiding in the back hallway waiting to come out, they can come back in. And I'll just close with a song myself. Just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Where's my, where's my rim shot, Brad? Kunch. Kunch. All right. I really like my own jokes. I'm sorry. I just can't help it. People ask me all the time, how was the sermon? I say, I think it was great. I'm not sure you should be asking me. You should be asking other people. Mark 6, 45. Mark 6, 45. Oh, this is so good. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and head across the lake to Bethsaida. And while he sent the people home, after telling everyone goodbye, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Now late that night, the disciples were in their boat in the middle of the lake, and Jesus was alone on land. And he saw that they were in serious trouble rowing hard and struggling against the wind and the waves. And about three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them, walking on the water. Now listen to this. Maybe some of you have read this phrase and asked the question, what's this about? We're going to talk about it. He intended to pass them by. Anybody ever read that before and thought, what's that about? He intended to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the water, they cried out in terror. These are men that made their living on the water. So if they're afraid, you should be afraid. Thinking he was a ghost, they were all terrified when they saw him. Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage, I am here. Doesn't sound like somebody who was about to pass them by, does it? Then he climbed into the boat, and the wind stopped, and they were totally amazed, for they still didn't understand the significance of the miracle of the loaves, and their hearts were too hard to take it in. Now, this same story is given to us in Matthew 14 and in John 6. And in John chapter 6, it says that as soon as it stopped, the boat was immediately at the port on the other side of the lake. There's that teleportation ministry that we keep hoping is going to happen again one day. Verse 48, when it says that he intended to pass them by, the Greek here, which is what the Bible was originally written in, in the New Testament, right? The Greek here literally means exactly this. He was desirous to pass them by. I want you to hear me here. That phrase does not speak to his intention. It speaks to their impression. You tracking with me? This phrase that he desired to pass them by is not talking about the intention of Christ because we begin to, to discover the intention of Christ as we read the rest of the story as we just did. It's not talking about Jesus' intention. It's talking about their impression. How do we know that? Because part of the end of the story here that we just read it says that their hearts were too hard to understand the significance of the Multiplication of the loaves and the fishes, which had just happened. Now, why is that connected to this story? 
Because God is trying to help us to understand that if we misunderstand the nature of Christ, then we're going to continually find ourselves in situations and circumstance where we misunderstand His intention. Our impression of Christ is based on our understanding of His nature. And so one of the reasons why he did the miracle of the loaves and the fishes is he was trying to reveal part of who he was to the world. And what he was trying to reveal to them was two things. One, that he has limitless power and that he loves them. Because he could have done any miracle, but the miracle that he did was to meet a practical need that they had. He cared that they were hungry. He cared that they were hungry. See, when I understand the kind of power that Jesus has that he's willing to use on my behalf. And when I understand that his love for me is a love that is indescribable and is not in any way connected to merit or to me earning it, he loves me unconditionally. When I understand his power and when I understand his love, I will never come to the conclusion about his intention that he's trying to pass me by. I will only and always believe that he's forever making his way towards me. Can I just tell you the world is desperate to know that Jesus? The world is desperate to know that Jesus. And for far too long, churches that are caught up in the political divide in ways that they shouldn't be, churches that are caught up in the conversation about racism in ways that they shouldn't be, is bringing to the world a Christ who he is not. And so we should not be surprised that the world oftentimes feels as though Jesus is passing them by because of what they believe about Christ, because of people that have misrepresented his name, have presented him to the world. Our responsibility as a church is to understand who is he and then to help the world to discover who that is. So they too can wake up every day believing with all of their heart that Jesus is only and forever making his way toward them. Isaiah 40. I'm going to read some of these verses and then I'm going to close. Isaiah 40, who else has held the oceans in his hand? Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? Who else knows the weight of the earth or has weighed the mountains and hills on a scale? Who is able to advise the spirit of the Lord? Who knows enough to give him advice or teach him? Has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? Does he need instruction? About what is good? Did someone teach him what is right or show him the path of justice? No. For all the nations of the world are but a drop in a bucket. They are nothing more than the dust on the scales. He picks up the whole earth as though it were a grain of sand. All the wood in Lebanon's forest and all of Lebanon's animals would not be enough to make a burnt offering worthy of our God. The nations of the world are worth nothing to him. In his eyes, they count for less than nothing, mere emptiness and froth. He's not talking about the value of them as people. He's talking about the significance of nations in comparison to himself. To whom can we compare God? What image can you find to resemble him? 
Can he be compared to an idol formed in a mold overlaid with gold or decorated with silver and change? Or if people are too poor for that, they might at least choose wood that won't decay and a skilled craftsman, craftsman to carve an image that won't fall down. Haven't you heard? Don't you understand? Are you deaf to the words of God, the words he gave before the world began? Are you so ignorant? God sits above the circle of the earth. The people below seem like grasshoppers to him. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain and makes his tent from them. He judges the great people of the world and brings them all to nothing. They hardly get started, barely taking root when he blows on them and they wither. The wind carries them off like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Asks the Holy One. Stand with me. Father, I pray that verses like those in Isaiah would resonate in our hearts all the days of our lives. And that we would have a revelation like we've never had before about how great you are, how grand you are, how powerful you are, how perfect you are. And that with the limitless power that you have, you're always looking for opportunities to use it on our behalf because you love us with an indescribable love. And in moments like maybe some people walked in here tonight and are feeling as though that you're desirous to pass them by, that they would realize that you are making your way toward them. And I pray that you would give them the courage to hold on until you get there. Because when you do, there is a calm that you bring and a destination that you carry us to in a way that we could never get there on our own. Help us to be those people because those are the people that the world needs right now. And help us to do our part in moving this great nation to a place of unity that you created it to possess. In Christ's great name, we pray. And everybody said together, amen. We'll see you next week.